0: If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah. This morning we'll b- begin a brief series in this short four-chapter book. It will carry us through the month of June. The book of Jonah is probably um, one of the best known in the Bible. I mean, virtually everyone knows of the story of Jonah and The Great Fish, it is the world's greatest fishing story and the story of the world's worst missionary all packaged into one. But in spite of our awareness of uh, at at least the basic elements of the story, there seems to be a, a low level of understanding of the message of the book of Jonah, the theological message that God is communicating in the record of the events of Jonah's life. Jonah is unusual in a number of ways. It's a prophetic book, one of the 12 minor prophets, not minor because they're insignificant, but minor because they're shorter relative to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those larger prophetic books of the Old Testament. These are the 12 smaller prophetic books of the Old Testament. And in most cases, they pack a considerable punch. Jonah is also rare in that it is a prophetic book that addresses not Israel as the covenant people of God, but actually a neighboring nation. Jonah has been called by God in Jonah chapter 1 to take the message of repentance and judgment to an an outside Gentile nation of people in the Assyrians, specifically to the city of Nineveh, which we'll read about in just a moment. The book of Jonah is also unusual in that it is a prophetic book that is not prophetic in the ordinary sense. If you were to go to, say, Micah, for instance, the makeup of the book of Micah, the substance of the book of Micah is the preaching ministry of Micah. It is the message that God puts in the heart and mouth of Micah the prophet. Whereas in the case of most prophets... The message is the ministry of the prophet. The message is the life of the prophet in the book of Jonah. We're following the experiences of Jonah the prophet and gleaning prophetically from those experiences. We're drawing application not from the sermon the prophet preaches, but from the experiences Jonah has over the course of his life. And, and it's also unusual in that we're not so much emphasizing learning from a good example as we are learning from a bad example. I don't know what this says about me, but I have always learned better from a bad example than from a good example. So Jonah is the book for me, right? The key theme in the book of Jonah, we're going to talk about this this morning and in every message. Here's the key theme. You Ready? The key theological theme in the book of Jonah is the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign over all things. Jonah is found in chapter 1 kicking against the goads of God's call, and guess what? God wins. You can resist the call of God on your life if you like, but it will always end poorly for you. And it's not just that God is sovereign over the life of Jonah. He's sovereign over the ministry of Jonah. He's sovereign over the geographic location of Jonah's ministry. He's sovereign over the ship that Jonah boards to flee the presence of the Lord. He's sovereign over the storm that's brewing in the skies above that ship. He's sovereign over the winds generated by that storm. He's sovereign over the waves generated by those winds. He's sovereign over the fish under that sea he's sovereign over the pagans that board that ship alongside him later in jonah chapter four we find that god is sovereign over the very vine that grows to provide shade for jonah he's sovereign over an east and scorching wind that would wither away at that vine and he's even sovereign over a tiny little worm that is primary in the destruction of that vine that brought Jonah such comfort he is sovereign over the king of Nineveh and he is sovereign over the 120,000 subjects of the king of Nineveh in spite of Jonah's efforts here in chapter one there is no place in the cosmos not a high spot not a low spot Not dry land nor sea, no distant galaxy that can take Jonah away from the sovereign control of God. There is not a verse in the book of Jonah that does not at least by implication speak to the sovereignty of God over all things. Now packaged within that theme, secondary to but critical to the theme of God's sovereignty in the book of Jonah is the idea that God has a worldwide plan for the redemption of his people. A plan that, by the way, he is sovereignly working out, even at the reluctance and outright resistance of Jonah the prophet. Jonah finds himself under the sovereign hand of God, an unwilling participant in God's plan of salvation for the nations. Jonah chapter 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Jonah one, this is the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and they singled out Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us, who's to blame for this trouble we're in? What's your business and where are you from? What's your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. The men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you to calm this sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so it may quiet down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that's against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. They picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men feared the Lord even more. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Verses one through three set the scene for us. The Bible says again there that the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and spoke to him these words, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me there's a problem already for Jonah we're not aware of it as readers yet but there is a problem God has called Jonah but that isn't in and of itself the problem The problem is the destination to which God has called Jonah specifically to the city of Nineveh in the days of Jonah there was one great formidable military and political power in the world that posed a great deal of threat To the people of Israel, it was the empire of the Assyrians. One of the great city-states within the Assyrian empire was the city of Nineveh. The name itself means nine cities. It's a bustling metropolis. The book of Jonah itself tells us that there were at least 120,000 people in the population of this city. Now, that may not seem like much by today's standards, but in ancient Near Eastern standards, that is a significant city. And that's where God's called Jonah to go. Alongside other prophetic ministries like that of Amos, who is preaching among the northern tribes of Israel that the judgment of God against them is imminent, that the hour for their repentance and restoration has passed, that even at the present moment an army is being raised in a distant nation to to, to be the sword of God's judgment against them. While things are at their worst among the northern tribes of Israel, God has assigned that Jonah would go to their chief enemy, preach this message of judgment. Now it reads almost as if the message is exclusively judgment. God says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. The idea here is that they have filled their sin. That's the language the Old Testament often uses. Or they have completed their sin. What it speaks to is the idea that God's cup of patience with this particular people is full. The time of his judgment has come. Now, we're not afforded this insight in verses one through three, but later in the book of Jonah, we are. Jonah understands that packaged with this threat of judgment, is the promise of restoration, that packaged together an impending doom and gloom for Assyria, should they continue in their ways, is the promise that they might be restored through repentance, that God would, in the language of Jonah, relent from the wrath that was to come against them. So Jonah has been commissioned, he has been called by God to hold forth the promise of redemption to the Assyrians while other noble prophets are preaching in Israel that judgment is now imminent. There is no turning back. Not only is the cup of God's patience with Israel full, it is overflowing and the time of wrath has come. And so Jonah resists. He will not go. Often overlooked in our cursory readings of the book of Jonah is the reality that it is nothing less than prejudice or outright racism that prevents Jonah from being willing to go to the Assyrian people to preach to them the message of forgiveness. They are... Arch enemy number one for the people of Israel. Again, they posed the great threat and eventually it would in fact be the Assyrian empire that would sweep through those 10 northern tribes of Israel, carry them away, and in many instances replant population in the northern territory from other ethnic backgrounds, giving creation to the Samaritan people you read about who were so despised by the Jews in the New Testament. Eventually, Assyria would, in fact, be the sword of judgment against the nation of Israel. And in light of all of this and the great hostility that many Jews felt for the Assyrian people, Jonah just flat would not go. You could read the Old Testament with sort of blinders on, with a narrow focus. Misunderstanding or plucking out of context a handful of passages. And convince yourself that the grace of God issued forth in his covenant with Israel was exclusive to the nation of Israel, that it was bound by the geographic boundaries of that land. But Jonah helps us to understand here that God has always had an international ends of the earth mission purpose in all the world. Was looking at a passage just the other day in fact it was jason and i were having this conversation in genesis 11 when that when the nations are separated when languages are confused that episode is followed immediately after by the call and commission of abraham which is the implementation of god's plan to win the nations of people from among the nations unto himself just as soon as the nations are scattered and languages are confused, God begins to actively work in that very moment to gather to himself a people all his own. If you've ever convinced yourself That the grace of God afforded us in Jesus, that the great benefits and privileges of the gospel are exclusive to your ethnic group or to your geographic location, you are confusing yourself and have wandered far from the heart of our God. Perhaps even for some of you, the call of God is created reluctance or outright resistance because of the location the destination or those to whom god had called you to share the good news of the gospel woe unto us if that ever be our motivating factor god had called jonah to go to nineveh to preach to them of their wickedness and the need for repentance verse three the bible says that jonah got up to flee to tarshish from the lord's presence He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Now Jonah's a prophet, a theologian, we might say. Jonah knows, Jonah understands the doctrine of God's omnipresence. It's a doctrine that just teaches us, it's a biblical principle that God is every, there's nowhere that you can go to escape The presence of the Lord. And you know it too. There's nowhere that you can go to escape the presence of the Lord. But just as foolishly as Jonah, you and I will make efforts at times in our life to escape his presence, to convince ourselves that somehow God doesn't see us in our present state or is unaware of the decision as it unfolds. To think we can get to some distant territory apart from the all seeing eye of God, to do as we please or to escape his call on our life. There's a word play in verse 3 unfolding here. You may have picked up on this. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa. He paid the fare and went down into the ship. Later in verse number 5, the Bible says Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the vessel. There's an intentional design in these verses to demonstrate that once you part from the call of God on your life, the trajectory of your life is downward. God called Jonah, by the way, to go to the northeast and his immediate move is to the south and the west. And just as soon as Jonah makes the decision to flee from the presence of the Lord, to reject the call of God on his life, his life goes down, 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 and down. You may make the determination to resist the will of God for your life, to resist his call, the direction that he has for you, but you will not do so without consequence. The trajectory of your life, apart from answering affirmatively the call of God, is down, 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 down. It always ends disastrously. Most of us have probably not visited Tarshish lately. So let's talk a little bit about location here. Jonah is not only interested in departing from the presence of the Lord, which he has, by the way, assigned to the nation of Israel, he wants here to get as far away as he can possibly get. In fact, I think there's consensus among scholars that the Tarshish that is referenced in our passage is actually on the coast of Spain, which if you know your European geography is on the west coast of Europe, the south and west coast of Europe. That's a long way from Israel. The book of Jonah is written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And even 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome to say to them that if I'm ever going to be able to get to the ends of the earth, which is my heart's desire with the message of the gospel, if I'm ever going to get to Spain specifically, I'm going to have to move the mission base Our platform for ministry away from Antioch in northern Palestine to the Italian peninsula and the city of Rome. The only way we're ever going to be able to do ministry in Spain is to move westward 2,000 miles to get our missions outpost from Israel all the way to the Italian peninsula. And here, without the advancements in technology and travel, which were considerable between the time of Jonah and Jesus... Jonah is taking great pains not only to flee the presence of the Lord, but to get to the very edge of what was known, what was the known world at this particular interval in history. Now, here's a little interpretive principle that can be beneficial for you this morning and even into the future as you read narrative text. When I say narrative text, I mean those passages in the Bible that tell the story. They read as history and indeed they are historical. 75% of the Bible is narrative in genre. That's the style the Bible takes to communicate to us of God's work in the world and how we're to interpret the events of human history as God has intervened and acted on our behalf in the unfolding of this plan. Usually when you're reading a narrative passage, if you will identify the main characters in the narrative, usually each of those main characters will communicate a certain principle or message from the text itself. There are three main characters in our passage. There is God, there is Jonah, and there are the pagans. We're introduced initially here to Jonah. And what we're learning from Jonah in chapter 1, not just in verses 1 through 3, but in the, in the, in the whole chapter, really, and virtually throughout the book— is something of the omnipresence of God and the foolishness of running away from God's call on our life. Now, in this room, right here this morning, there are folks who either actively or by virtue of neglect and indifference are running away from the call of God. It's a foolish thing to say. It's kind of an oxymoron to talk about running away from an omnipresent God. You know better than that, even the pagans in our culture understand something of God's presence everywhere. And yet there are continual efforts on our part, at times, to run away from his call, to run away from his plan. Jonah is almost like a parody. It's almost like a comedy, right? We read Jonah and we go, well that Jonah, he's so dumb. Wound up in a fish, vomited up on dry ground. It's kind of a pitiful way to go, right? He's funny to us. We, we laugh at Jonah. He's kind of this goofy guy that is slow to get on board with what God's plan is. But I got news for you, brothers and sisters. You and I are Jonah. We know of God's omnipresence, of his presence everywhere. We know of his sovereignty. Listen, I realize the sovereignty of God at some point gets into a sort of a controversial area, But at the heart of what it means to be God is to be sovereign over all things. You know that from birth. My three-year-old boy knows of the sovereignty of God. He may not know how to flesh it out, but he understands that godness means power. And to be the true and living God over all things means to control all things. Everything is under his sway. And yet we run. And we resist his will and we reject his authority, and we shirk his call, and we quench the Holy Spirit. In this room, there are those of you who are actively or passively running away from the call of God. And I would charge you this morning that you break down your pride and you yield to the will of God. You may kick against the goads of God's will, but it will always yield painful outcomes for you. There are times when preaching on a Sunday morning, I wish that it wasn't a a Sunday morning sermon, that I could just sit with some of you and talk face to face. And you look across this congregation, the same is true in the other services, and, and I'm looking out at people that I know are carrying some weight, some baggage, and they're struggling with some stuff. Look, looking out across the last two services, I'm looking into the faces of people that I know, are, their lives are being ravaged by sin in ways that are almost immeasurable. And I just want to say to them what these sailors say to Jonah eventually in our passage. What are you doing? What, 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 who do you think you are? And what, not in a mean or callous way. Listen, I'm not trying to rough you up this morning. I'm just telling you that if God has called and hasn't he called, you better answer the call. Or you're going to follow the same path of Jonah. You may find yourself in the belly of a fish. Your fate may be far worse. Down, 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 down. That's the trajectory of your life unless or until you bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus over all things. It is a fool-hearted thing to run away from the call of God. For some of you it's it's that it's that basic and most gracious of callings. There people around you in your life. And, and they've shared with you the beauty and the truth of the gospel. That God has taken such a keen interest in you. That he has loved you so much. That he's given his son over as, a, as an atoning sacrifice for your sin. God has traded his only perfect righteous son for your for your forgiveness for your eternity that jesus died as our substitute on the cross was raised again on the third day that god has done this for you for your salvation you have quenched the work of god's holy spirit or in your natural state simply don't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear hasten to him Or find the same fate Jonah experiences in our passage. Jonah finds the pit and there is pain and anguish in the pit. There may be some young men in our church who are experiencing the stirrings of God's Holy Spirit in their heart. You know God's calling you to preach the message of the gospel in that formal sense. God's calling you to pastor Or some young women that that have sensed in their spirit God is stirring in their heart. God giving them a heart for the nations. And you know that God is calling you to go. Maybe a young couple, a family. And you've been talking together. God has been putting together, orchestrating the pieces of your life. Setting the table so that you're ready and available to plant your life among the nations. And you, you know that. Even in those instances... If you shirk the responsibility God has called to you, it will always end in less than what God intends for your life. Listen, when God calls, when God calls, go, go. The outcome of kicking against the goads of God's call is always painful. God calls Jonah here. And Jonah chooses to flee so in verse four, the Bible says, the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The Sailors were afraid, each cried out to his God. and They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. I've always wondered about how in the world Jonah could go out, go into the belly of that ship and sleep. When the sailors are on deck offloading the cargo in the hopes of just surviving the storm there is a school of thought that suggests that Jonah goes down into the belly of the ship and he collapses in exhaustion due to the stresses of being tossed at sea and all of the seasickness that might have come along with that. He was not a seafaring man by trade or background or experience whereas the sailors were. Maybe there's a little bit of something to that, but the conversation that ensues immediately after this observation seems to indicate that that Jonah is simply in the belly of the ship without care or concern at the judgment that is coming. The captain approached him in verse 6 and says, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lots singled out Jonah. And they said to him, tell us who's to blame for this trouble. What's your business? Where are you from? Where's your country? And what people are you from? These these pagan sailors are more discerning when it comes to Jonah's life and his flight from the call of God than Jonah, the prophet of God. And this is almost customary when you reject the call of God. Some of you have friends and you have family and you've been sharing with them the gospel and you're watching them self-destruct as they give themselves over to sin. They're rejecting the call of God on their life and you can see it. It is so apparent. It is obvious. And you try to coach them and you warn them. Don't you see yourself coming apart at the seams? The blinding effect of sin just will not let them see it. Jonah's in the boat asleep, and he's perishing. And I wonder if there are any of you here sleepy on a Sunday morning. You don't know it, but you're perishing. I, I'm, I hope that God puts some people around you in your life with a strong enough, enough voice that you'll hear them and hear them well. It just doesn't end well when you flee the call of God. He answers them in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. The men were even more afraid. This pagan idea is that gods are assigned to certain territories or locations, even features of the landscape. There would be a, a god of a city, God of a region, God of a state, God of a country, God of the sea, God of the sky, God of the sun, the moon, etc. What's interesting about this whole scenario is that Jonah is operating from that pagan worldview point of view. Jonah has assigned the presence of God to the national boundaries of Israel. But when he identifies the God he serves as the one who made the heavens and the sea and the dry land, the sailors are understand there is nowhere we can go to escape this vengeful God and the storm that's tossed us upon the sea the pagans are getting it when Jonah can't listen there are people around you in your life who have the wisdom to speak into your experience because your experience is so dreadful your self-destruction is so obvious it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out you are falling apart resisting the will of God Jonah can't see it. For all of his theological insight, consider the ways he's described the Lord. He understands the omniscience of God, and yet he, he, he thinks he's going to slide away. He understands the omnipresence of God. He thinks he's going to run away. He understands the nature of God. He's the creator of all things, and yet he believes somehow he's going to find a place. This is how backward, how upside down, how, frankly, stupid we can be when it comes to rejecting the call of God on our life the sailors are even more afraid they said to him what is this you've done in other words what are you doing it's almost a what is wrong with you man moment the men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he told them he acknowledges what he's done if if you share the gospel much at all you've had this experience Sharing with someone, you're talking with them about the promises of the gospel, what God has done for us in Jesus to save us from our sin, and they will acknowledge, "I'm a sinner, and I'm bound for hell." Occasionally, you'll run into that. It's 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 not commonplace because everyone in the South thinks they're a Christian, but from time to time, someone will be honest enough to just acknowledge, "I'm a sinner." And I'm bound for it. And you always think there's this moment of great expectation. If they realize the judgment that is to come and the promises of salvation in Jesus, this will, this is low-hanging fruit. Surely they will come. But what you so often find is that they are so intoxicated by the cares and fleeting pleasures of this world that in spite of what seems to be an awareness of the judgment that is to come, they are they are to persist in their sin. They think they have eyes to see and ears to hear, but their hearts simply cannot fathom the judgment that awaits. They knew he was fleeing because he told them. So they said to him, what should we do to calm this sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse he answered them pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it may quiet down for you for i know that i'm to blame for this violent storm that is against you i can't imagine saying that in the moment except that there's a great deal of difference in saying throw me down into the belly of the fish and going down into the belly of the fish Sometimes there's a sort of feigned humility about this that, that helps to soothe the guilty conscience. We, we know we've gone the wayward way, so we discount our, our self-value, the value of our life, and we feel as though we've done a noble thing in speaking with such humility under the circumstances. But oftentimes we can convince ourselves that we don't truly care about the consequences and there's a certain satanic liberty that comes along with that. I've mentioned this before because it was such a profound moment in my pre-Christian life and it's worth mentioning again. I can remember the place, the sights and sounds, the smells, where I was, other cars that were in the parking lot, the temperature on that day where I had been and where I was going when when it ran through my mind that if I died at this moment, I was a very lost young man, if I died at this moment, I would perish in hell forever and not caring about that outcome and that devilish sense of liberty that overwhelmed me in that morning, in that moment. Now, I I couldn't know it then in my pride and incredible egotism. But I would say to you this morning, there is a great deal of difference in thinking I will go to hell and I don't care and going down into the pit. Jonah says in this moment, throw me down. I'm to blame for this violent storm. Now, the sailors are in a difficult spot. The Bible tells us in verse 13 that the men rode hard to get back to dry land but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. Now, they're in a predicament. On the one hand, we're at sea, and the storm has tossed the ship. It's threatening to break apart because Jonah is on board. The the logical conclusion they might reach would be if we get him off board, we will be okay. The problem is he is a prophet of God. And while God is after Jonah now, which has jeopardized our life, it would be far worse if God were after us. They don't know whether to throw him overboard, that the storm would relent for fear of killing him and then God coming after them. So they call out in verse 14 to the Lord, please Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. They picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, I take a great deal of comfort in this principle I'm about to share with you. God has a purpose, a plan, and is sovereignly at work gathering together his people from every tribe, tongue, ethnicity, and background. And even as Jonah resists the plan of God, the product of his resistance is what appears to be the conversion of these pagan sailors. Jonah got on the boat to run from God. And what we have here is within a very short window of time, these pagan men who are worshipers of other gods. I would add they're sailors, which is not exactly a vocation known for its virtue and righteousness, right? No offense, sailors. Here they are at the close of our passage, making vows and sacrificing to the Lord. Now, only he can do that. Now, I'm I'm so glad that even in my foolishness and yours too, God has an incredible way of making something out of nothing. The very act of judgment that God brought against Jonah proved to be the factor in the conversion for these pagan sailors. Listen, God is persistent in the pursuit of his people. Neither you nor I will stand in his way. At gathering together his people from the four corners of the world. I'm encouraged by that. Weeks like this past week, we've we've witnessed as Southern Baptists, Great Commission Baptists, this task force report that's come out over the past days that's grieved me so. And my, my initial response and our initial response, and this is good and this is right don't misunderstand me, are the ways that reports like that, the misbehavior of men in positions of power, supposed to be in positions of influence for the advancement of the gospel, would use their power and influence for satanic, hellish, devilish, self-serving means. How will that, how in the world will that impede the advancement of the gospel? We ought to think in those terms. But at the same time, we ought to rest in the absolute sovereignty of God that not even the resistance or outright hellishness of prophet or pastor can stop the work of our God in all the world for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad in that? We're learning from God's activity in our passage of his persistence in pursuing his people and his sovereignty in that process and brothers and sisters that ought to to deal a great deal of comfort to your heart you were able to sleep last night and lord willing i'll be able to sleep this afternoon because my god neither sleeps nor slumbers i get again listen i alluded to this in the introduction this can kind of be a controversial thing for some people if god isn't sovereign i don't know how he's god And I'm just telling you, this doctrine so central to who he is, is the reason you and I can rest. Because as we learn to sing as little bitty babies, he has the whole world in his hands. That's good news for us. And even better than that is that this great, big, sovereign God who has the whole world in his hands is persistent in his pursuit of his people. He is coming after us. We were lost. And so his son came to seek out and to save that which was lost by his great power and under the atoning work of his blood. God's persistence in going after Jonah Results from his persistence in going to the nations with the message of the gospel. Verse 17 says, the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. We'll we'll take this up in next week's look at Jonah chapter 2. I want to encourage you again. Of the sovereignty of God. I want you to be encouraged of God's interest in the nations. These are key features here. But I also wonder how many of you are wrestling with the call of God in some way. It may be something as small or as subtle as God's call to repent of a certain sin in your life. That was the message that Jonah was to take to Nineveh. You've been toying around, trifling with sin. The convicting work of the Spirit has been stirring in your heart for some time. Maybe you've even passed that phase. There there is a post-stirring phase where we're desensitized to the convicting work of the Spirit, and we almost forget. Sin just moves in, and it's a normal part of our everyday life and you've long since even considering breaking with the presence of that sin why don't you come away the warning of jonah one the warning of the book of jonah is that it's a hard thing to kick against the goads of god's call why don't you come to him again if i could sit with you kneecap to kneecap and eyeball to eyeball i just ask you what what are you what in the world are you doing How is it that you've convinced yourself that you could escape the presence and the power of an omnipresent and omnipotent God? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and the opportunity to give consideration to these verses this morning. I pray, God, that you would help us to hide in our hearts these principles, that we would remember the foolishness of running from the Lord your mission's purpose, your plan for the salvation of a people all your own and your absolute sovereignty over all things. Help us to hide away in our heart these precepts that we might not sin against you. God, I I pray for those who've heard the call, who've experienced the stirring of the spirit in their heart, who've resisted foolishly Counted the things of this world as having greater value than what you've promised to offer us in the gospel. God, I pray that you would break their hearts, give them eyes to see, give them just a glimpse of what awaits in the pit. God, I pray that they would run to Jesus and with enthusiasm answer the call. Be saved, go, share whatever it is that you've assigned. God, I pray that you give us a gladness of heart and the calling that you've placed on our life. Forgive us where we come short. But Father, it is that so often we're so immersed in the things of this world, so fixated on the things of this world, the call goes unheard, neglected, and just set aside. God, forgive us of our indifference and our foolishness. God, save some in these next moments. In Jesus' name.